It is good to be here today, and um, this indeed is an opportunity for many of us to seek rest, and rest is a little bit of a theme of the sermon today. It's an opportunity for us to seek rest because we just had an awesome week of Vacation Bible School. How many of you have ever worked Vacation Bible School before? Just raise your hand. Okay, uh, this, this past week, many of us worked Vacation Bible School, and it really is exhausting. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's exciting, uh, but there is just something about it that, that is exhausting. And this is something very similar to what uh, the disciples had experienced in their ministry, this need for rest. And in this passage, we learn that it is Jesus that provides everything for them. And I am not texting while preaching. I just want to let you know that. I'm using my phone uh, because the printer in the office is not working. And um, so this is a new thing for me. All the cool preachers are doing it, so I said, why not? <laughs> we need rest and we need nourishment from our Savior. Each and every one of us need rest and nourishment from our Savior. We actually do our best work from rest. How many accidents, how many tragedies have occurred? And I believe that, that, that uh, research and investigation has proved this, that many, many accidents and, and tragedies that have occurred have occurred because those in charge were not well rested. They had worked insane hours without rest, and from that came work that was not up to par and people uh, suffered. So our best work comes from rest and nourishment. So today we will learn that the demands of life make rest and nourishment elusive. Uh, just talk to a young mom. We have four kids. Does my wife get very, very many opportunities for rest and nourishment? No, if, if you've been a young mom, you, under, you understand how difficult that is. So today we come to the, the account of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. So we come to one of those familiar accounts of the scriptures. There's no doubt that you have heard uh, many sermons and Sunday school lessons on the account of Jesus' feeding of the multitudes. This is familiar to those of us who grew up in church. Before we dig into this account, we need to look at what happened in Mark 6 before uh, this account of, G of Jesus feeding the multitudes. So if you look back in your Bible, you will see that the 12 apostles had been sent by Jesus on a missionary journey. He had sent them out with, with certain authority and power to, to preach the gospel and to perform miracles. From our reading today, there's no doubt that their ministry had been very successful. Ministry exerts energy, and again, we can just ask those who worked BBS, the yes, ministry exerts energy, it's hard work, and work requires rest. We must rest from our work, and we must rest to work, so that we can be energized. So we see in the, the opening verses of our lesson uh, today from Mark chapter 6, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. 
So I can just imagine that the 12 are excited. They're thrilled about what God had done through them. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. How many of you would say that sounds good right about now? Let's go to a quiet place and let's get some rest. Sounds good, right? So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, and I love solitary places. Don't get me wrong, I love people, but I love to get away from people too. It's nice to go to a place that is solitary. But listen to what happens. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of Jesus and the disciples. So by the time Jesus and the disciples uh, land on shore to this supposedly solitary place, there they encounter over 5,000 people. Now if you're like me, you have your favorite spots, drive up on the mountains. In New York, I had my favorite places, drive down into the southern tier, into the Allegheny Mountains. I can't imagine getting to my favorite spot and there finding 5,000 people who were demanding that I uh, minister to them. So the apostles, they had just finished their missionary excursion. The demands of ministry led to their need for rest, but the masses followed Jesus, making rest impossible. Very interesting how Jesus responds. And I want you to take note of this in your Bibles. Take note of how Jesus responds to these people. How did Jesus respond? Our lesson says when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had what? What did he have on them? Compassion. He had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. So here they are. They are exhausted. Jesus sees the people, but he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And what does Jesus do? So he began to teach them many things. He began to teach them many things. And that's very significant as well. But before we dive into what is plain in the text, I want to talk about motive. The motive of the 5,000. What motivated the people to follow Jesus? We might assume that everyone who followed Jesus to this point only had good motives in mind. But what really motivated these people to follow Jesus? Why are the masses following him? What are they looking for? What do they really want from Jesus? Well, when we go to to John's account, John's account in John chapter 6, we begin to learn about the true motives of the masses following Jesus. You go to John 6.15, you will read that the people wanted to make Jesus a king. They wanted to make Jesus king by force. So after this account of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus then leaves them again. 
and he still can't get away from them if you continue to read in John's Gospel. Now this area, uh, uh, somewhere along the, the north shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee, how many of you have been to the north shore of the Sea of Galilee? I know a number of you went to Israel. and uh, North shore of the Sea of Galilee, this area was, was known as a hotbed of anti-Roman resistance. Uh, this is where the revolutionaries lived and, and gathered. Back in the day, Boston, Massachusetts was a hotbed of anti-British resistance. And that is where uh, the revolution really uh, began to give birth within our own history. How many of you have been to Boston and done all the historical sites there? It's a lot of fun. You've thrown the, the boxes of tea off of the ship and everything. It's a lot of fun. So this northern region of Galilee was kind of, of like the, the Boston of Jesus' day. The people in the region along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee hungered for a revolution. They hungered for a revolutionary leader. They wanted to throw off Roman oppression. And Jesus knew the, two in, the true intentions of these people to make him king. Jesus didn't desire the establishment, though, of an earthly kingdom. Jesus came to establish a heavenly kingdom that is not restricted by borders or ethnicity, an everlasting kingdom of every race, of every tongue. This is what Jesus came to establish. Jesus understood that these people needed a king. He knew that they needed a shepherd king. And really, the, the term shepherd is also applied to the kings of the Old Testament. He understood that they needed a king, that they needed a shepherd. So Jesus has compassion on these people. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus did not take the role of revolutionary king who established armies to defeat Roman occupation. Jesus was, yes, he was and he is a revolutionary king, but, but not in the military or political sense of the term. And Jesus was and is the king over a revolution of an eternal kingdom, an eternal kingdom which lays hold of the souls of lost people. And brings them to salvation. And brings them into a kingdom which will never, never end. And will never decay. He is a loving shepherd king. A loving shepherd king. So he, he sees the people. And he has compassion on them. Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been brought into this eternal kingdom. And your king is the Lord. God. Jesus Christ. The Holy. He is your loving shepherd king. He offers you rest and he offers you nourishment. He does. Today he wants to nourish you. Today he wants to give your soul rest and peace. Just as it was sung beautifully by the quartet today. 
and pay close attention. The anthem of our shepherd king is also found in what we recited at the beginning of our service today in Psalm 23. The anthem of our shepherd king, the Lord, listen to this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me do what? Lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He does what? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. For how long? Forever. This isn't a temporary kingdom, you know. Uh, we're, we're so, we're proud to be American. I'm proud to be an American, right? You're proud to be an American? But if the Lord tarries and continues, will this nation exist forever? No, history proves that. But here we have a king and a kingdom which is forever and ever. As the shepherd king, Jesus has compassion on the masses. He has compassion on you. He has compassion on you. He has compassion on the masses, even knowing their, their ultimate intention and hope, what they had hoped from Jesus was a king, an earthly king, who would lead a military and political revolution against Rome. He still has compassion on them, and he still has compassion on us too, right? Are our motives always pure and good and right? Absolutely not. We confess it. We are by nature what? We are sinful and unclean. We have sinned against the Lord in thought, in word, and in deed. And he has compassion on us. He loves us. He is our shepherd king. So what does Jesus do as shepherd king? Very important. We may think that we're going to jump right into the feeding, but something comes which is very important before the actual bread and fish are distributed. Verse 34, look closely in your Bible. What does Jesus do at first? This is most important. Last sentence of verse 34, what did he do? He began to do what? He began to teach them. He began to teach them. This is so significant. And we need to slow down here and digest this. What does this mean? Jesus understand, understood what they really needed. He understood that before, they, uh, before uh, physical food, what they needed was spiritual nourishment. They needed for Jesus to break before them the true bread of life, which is his word. He understood that these people needed spiritual food. They needed Jesus to break before them uh, this bread which will never perish. He understood that, that what these people needed first and foremost was the word of God. So, so Jesus teaches them. And I pray that you know the vital necessity of God's word in your life. I pray that you understand the, 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 
and you've experienced the rest and the peace that comes from God's Word. That the Holy Spirit works in His Word and through His Word to nourish us and to give us peace. So I ask you, are you sitting at the feet of Jesus? Are you partaking of the bread of life? Are you reading your Bible? God's word is gift. It is pure gift, gospel gift to you. So rest at the feet of Jesus. Rest at the feet of Jesus with open Bible. Be nourished by his word. Back to our account. The day grows long. The people are hungry. They need to eat. The situation is critical. The disciples have a solution. What is the disciples' solution to the dilemma? The solution is to send the people away so that they can find food on their own. So that they can go and feed themselves. But Jesus had something else in mind. Jesus wants the disciples to know that as shepherd king, Jesus provides everything. He provides everything. And that's where we find our rest in Jesus, right? And it's so hard for me because I, I, I am the type of person that worries. And I'm afraid that, that he isn't going to provide everything that I need, so I get out there. I'm the type of person that's just going to work and work and work to make sure that I can make everything happen. And that's exhausting. That's exhausting. We need to know that Jesus is the shepherd king who provides everything for us. Mark 6, 37 through 44, the remainder of the gospel lesson. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go? Here's this, this sarcasm that comes out from the disciples. It's not the only time in the, in the gospels that we read this. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to eat before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, and they all ate. And what does it say next? They all ate, and they were what? They were satisfied. Satisfied by the provision of the Savior. Satisfied by him. And they, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. So there's way more than enough. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. What do we have here? We have a miracle, right? A miracle. There are some liberal commentators who have, have said that, no, this isn't really a miracle. What this is is a miracle of generosity. The people actually already had all the food and they just ended up sharing it. I don't think so. This is a miracle from the Lord. This is, this is Jesus in action, providing for his sheep. 
But think about it. The disciples had a very reasonable solution to the problem. It's the same exact solution we would have if the problem had been presented to us. I can just see it in my mind. Church committee meeting. There's a problem presented before us. We have 5,000 people here. They need to eat. What would, the, what would the committee here at church decide to do? Well, send them away so that they can go and buy food for themselves, right? That's probably the solution that we would come up with. So, so we, we don't want to, to be too hard with the disciples here because this is actually uh, the reasonable and logical solution to the issue um, at hand. Send them away and let them find themselves something to eat. Jesus had called the 12 disciples into mission. Jesus wanted to teach them about his miraculous provision. Jesus had just sent the disciples on a missionary excursion with nothing to eat. So if you look back, you will see that when Jesus sent out the 12, he said, don't take anything with you. As I'm going to provide for you, my Father will provide for you. So they went trusting in the provision of God for everything, even their daily food. Well, I ask this question. How often do the natural facts, how often do the natural facts and numbers of life prevent you from experiencing the miraculous provision of a miracle working God? How often? Do the natural facts prevent you from experiencing the miraculous prevention, uh, provision of God in your life? <laughs> Got to be careful there with words. Change a word a little bit and it changes the whole meaning, right? And here's the thing. I don't think I'm being radical when I say this. I think I'm, I'm being biblical when I say this. If God is calling our church into mission, and if the, the vision and the strategy for mission in our neighborhood doesn't sound at least a little far-fetched and out there, out of our grasp, out of uh, the sphere of our ability to, to work and to do, I don't think it's from God. I don't think it's from God. I believe that God calls us to that which is beyond our ability so that we can learn to trust him for provision. Think about it. What has God called us to do? He has called us to reach a neighborhood which is drastically different from the neighborhood that was here over 50 years ago when this church was planted. Think about it. The demographics are completely different. And God has called us to reach this neighborhood. Will God provide what is needed for us to accomplish our mission here in this neighborhood? He will. Is it beyond our ability? Absolutely, it is beyond our ability. But it is not beyond the ability of God to use us as an evangelistic voice and force in this neighborhood. And when we understand that God is able to provide all things, that is where rest and peace come from. 
Now, I do believe that prudence and planning is good. I love the people that plan and prepare, don't get me wrong. But the mission of the church must be a mission that is totally dependent upon God in his ability to provide funding, resources, and people. As soon as we lose our dependence upon him, we're no longer trusting in the Lord and it's no longer his mission. So I want you to think about that when you go into, into, into committee meeting, planning, if you're a part of any ministry in the church where you're looking to the future, you're looking to establish a vision and, and a strategy for, for mission, think about that. Keep this word at the forefront of your meetings. What has God called us to do? And do we really trust that the Lord will provide for us in the execution and the, and the success of the ministry to which he's called us? We say and we decide in committee meetings exactly as the disciples did. Send the people away and let them find themselves something to eat. And all the while Jesus is saying, you feed them, you feed them. Impossible for us in and of ourselves? Yes, but with Jesus, we know that nothing, nothing is impossible. With him, all things are possible. And to that, you can start acting like a Pentecostal and say, amen, amen. There is no limit to what God can do through his church. Jesus does the miraculous. He feeds 5,000 men, 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. Most likely, some commentators say that they were counting the heads of the households. So there could have been well over 10,000 people that were fed that day. Our God is in the business of suspending the laws of nature to accomplish his plans and his purposes for his glory, not for our glory, and we need to understand that, for his glory in this world. So we can be at rest. We can be at peace in Jesus. Rest in him. Rest in him. He is your good shepherd. Nothing is impossible for him. But let's take a moment to think about Jesus' miracles. Jesus' miracles are never done just for show. He never satisfies the curiosity of those looking for a miracle working show. If that was the case, Jesus would have performed miracles much like uh, maybe Gandalf the Grey from The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Wouldn't that be cool just to go and see Gandalf's fireworks shows that he put, put on? Some of you may not know what I'm talking about, but some of you do. He's a wizard from the Lord of the Rings trilogy and from The Hobbit. He could have done that. He could have, you know, took off and flew and did loop-de-loops and all of these cool things for all the people. But he doesn't do that. It's interesting that Jesus' miracles are our restoration of the original order of creation. A restoration of the original order of creation. Or a reversal of the curse of sin and death which came from the fall, which really is the ultimate position of rest. Knowing that Jesus will reverse the curse of sin and death 
ultimately for us. You see, God created a perfect world for us to live in, but sin cursed our world and now terrible things like hunger and starvation and death and disease and demonic possession and terrible natural disasters are always before us. This is the world we live in because our world has been cursed by sin. The sufferings and injustices of our world are, are actually, they are actually unnatural. I hear people say this, death is natural. Is death natural? Were we created to die? No, death is not natural. It is completely and totally foreign to the human experience because we are eternal beings. When Jesus performs a miracle, he is simply restoring the original natural order of things, and he's also offering to us a foretaste of the eternal kingdom, a new heaven, and a new earth, which is yet to come. When Jesus does a miracle, he is making things as they should be, how he originally intended for them to be, and what they will be in the new heaven and the new earth. No one should go without food. Nobody should starve to death. That's not natural. That is not natural. Jesus knows that. So here he performed the miraculous and he feeds thousands of hungry people with a small lunch. And this reminds us that everything that Jesus did was redemptive in nature. It was done to point to his redemptive work in a fallen and broken world. It was to show that he has come truly as the good shepherd to save his people. So everything Jesus does is to redeem a lost and broken and dying world. And he is your good shepherd. He has redeemed you. He laid his life down upon the cross for you. He suffered for you. He shed his blood for you. They put him in a tomb and three days later, he overcame death. He redeemed us from the curse of death by his resurrection. Before he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he promised the disciples something. He said, I'm coming again. I'm coming again. And when I come again, I make all things new. All things will be restored once and for all and finally. A new heaven, a new earth. Even your mortal body will be raised imperishable. What good news. But today we live in the valley of the shadow of death. We do. All things have not been restored yet. Jesus is yet to come. So I ask you this. Do you know the reality of Psalm 23 today? Do you know the reality of Psalm 23? I'm not, I'm not asking if you have it memorized. But do you know, do you truly know Psalm 23 today? 
Have you experienced his loving work, his shepherding work, his caring work, his compassionate work in your heart? Are you at peace with God? Are you at rest in him? Today, no. Know it. Believe it. Lay hold of this promise. The Lord is your shepherd. You lack nothing. He died for you. He was raised for you. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. Find rest in him today. Rest in that reality. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness. We thank you that you are our shepherd. We thank you that you're the shepherd king that provides all things for us. And Lord, you do bring before us mountains and obstacles and situations that are impossible for us. And as we stand before those things in our lives, which are so difficult, maybe it's a problem in, in a family, maybe it's a problem in a marriage, situation with finances or a job, whatever it might be, Lord, health issues, we thank you, Lord, that you provide for us, that you shepherd us, that you lead us. And Lord, our miracle may not come in this life, but our miracle is yet to come. And with great hope and with great confidence in you, we trust in you. And we look forward to that day, that day which is going to be glorious. And we find our rest in the reality of the promises which you've given to us in your word. So may this congregation be at peace. May this congregation be at rest in you. And Lord Jesus, may we have great faith in you, great confidence in you as we do face whatever there is for us in the future. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.